The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. Today is March 14th, 2022. Um we are usually accompanied by the wonderful Darian Douglas, but tonight it will be a, a solo show with uh, myself and uh, our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guest tonight. Um, but a couple housekeeping things before we uh, we move on tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're gearing up for our sixth annual Sanaa Music Workshop here in New Orleans. And so if you all have any young people in mind who are interested in studying music and pursuing a career in the arts, uh, we've been hosting this summer workshop for the last six years, and we're really excited that this will be our first year back in person since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And um, we're going to be holding the dates, or the dates we'll be hosting the camp will be June 6th through the 17th here in New Orleans, Louisiana, at the Jazz and Heritage Foundation Center on Rampart Street. And I'm so excited to announce that our special guest artist this year will be the one and only Marquise Hill from Chicago, Illinois. He's a fantastic trumpet player, wonderful composer, and uh, he's one of my favorite artists. So, uh, you know, shout out to Darian Douglas for hooking that up. When uh, when we originally had a conversation in the beginning of the year about who my dream artist would be, Marquise was my first uh, my first choice, and I'm I'm so excited to have the opportunity to have him come to New Orleans. And I believe this is going to be his first trip in the Crescent City. So without further ado, um, tonight we have a very, very, very wonderful guest. And uh, I was very fortunate to grow up with this, uh, this particular person. And uh, she is a, a native of New Orleans, Louisiana. She is a pianist and composer. And uh, I'm, I'm, like, I'm looking at her bio right now. And uh, the first thing it says is a pianist and composer of panoramic interests. And that's a quote from the New York Times. So, you know, if you have a quote from the New York Times, you've done something right with your, uh, with your art and your life. Um, we have uh, the wonderful Dr. Courtney Bryant in the house. And um, yeah, so let's, let's go ahead and invite Dr. Bryant. Hi, Mr. Ajit. Oh, Mr. Ajit, come on. You don't have to call me Mr. Ajit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could call each other for a second. But yeah, it's so great to, great to talk with you. It's, it's so wonderful to have you here. And um, it just, you know, right off the bat, it, it's it, right before this call, I was reflecting on um, just how fortunate I, I am to, to say that we grew up together and say that we've like spent so many times hanging out at, you know, jazz camp and up at the third floor of Loyola and also uh, the Nelson Elementary School. I know, right? Same here. <laughs> A lot of great memories. And we, we've definitely been fortunate. And- in these situations. So blessed, like, like so blessed. And it's crazy to, you know, I'm, I'm 35 now and it's crazy to be at this part of my life too, and still be able to like, I mean, I guess we're looking at each other virtually through zoom, but to, to, to still stare across the room at you and just be in awe of all the things you've done in the last 15, 20 years since we were like dreaming of doing this. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That's exciting. Yeah. Courtney, how you doing tonight? I'm doing fine. Yeah, I'm doing fine. You know, it's always a balancing act of things, which I know we talk about um, right now. I'm, um, I teach full time at Tulane University and, and we're in that midterm season where everybody's waiting for their grades and stuff. So <laughs> it's how you put on one hat and then you take it off and do another hat. So anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about um, talking about music right now. Well, you know, first of all, we, we got to figure out like, uh, how do you go about grading? You just like look at the kids names and you're like, I like you. You're going to get an A. And- <laughs> So hopefully that's the way I'm not grading. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we that's always an interesting thing. And like, it's a couple of us grading actually together. So we had to really figure out, you know, how, how we evaluate and everything. So that's always, I feel like I love the teaching part and grading is always the part that I'm like, oh no, it's like I have to evaluate people. But I guess that's how we learn, right? 
Yeah, I guess sometimes. I mean, I guess everyone has a different philosophy on, on how grades work and things like that. I That's look true. at it as my opportunity to, to really like, you know what, if you didn't <laughs> to get even. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> In a loving way. Like, you know, I love I love giving A's to the kids that like earn them. And I just mm. love, there's nothing that makes me happy. Than being, Man, you know, that cat worked his ass off this year and you mm. get an A plus. And then there's also, there's like something strangely satisfying of being like, been I've been telling you to turn in that assignment for six weeks. Guess you're gonna get a seat. You, you sound like <laughs> some of our teachers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all it's all with love. No, I know. Um, what what classes do you teach over at Tulane? Um, so this semester I'm co-teaching a class with um, Professor Matt, Matt Sakakini. It's called Black Music, Black Lives, and that's really been a joy teaching that one. Um, the students are from around the university, so a few are music majors. Most are all kind of it's like a mix of all kind of majors and we have really lively discussions about the music itself and also the politics around and, and the social situations of black people creating music of various styles and then I also teach a jazz arranging course which I really enjoy and it's a smaller course so we really kind of get into each student's uh, projects and process and everything so that's my first year teaching that class and I've been enjoying that. Something that's really interesting about Tulane is that I believe that Tulane may be the first university in 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 the states that has an official Black American music program. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? I can tell you a little bit about it, um, and I know I know you've been a part of the Tulane faculty um, as well, so you've seen like the you know different stages. Um, I would say that definitely our our colleague uh, Jesse McBride um, would be one to talk about like how this came about over time is something he's really been working on uh, for a while. And so we're in this process of, um, of renaming uh, jazz studies to black American music. And in the renaming, of course, we're also revisiting the curriculum and trying to decide like, what are our priorities as far as classes that are required for majors? How can we expand, you know, use this as a chance to kind of expand what's offered when we think about Black American music. It's not like any one style of music or anything, you know, it's, it's um, so, so this is a really exciting opportunity for us as a division and for the department. And I'm pretty sure it must be one of the first um, Black American music majors. I, I, I'm pretty sure it is. If I, if the literature I've read on Tulane uh, in, in the, the changing of the name, I think it is. Um, for for the, for the people listening uh, who maybe have who have not been part of this conversation, I, I know it's a conversation that's been happening for forever. I guess since the inception of the word jazz, but um, I believe you know Nicholas Payton has really been putting it on the forefront of people's minds in the last couple of years. But maybe could you could you touch on maybe the the importance of um, what it means to to rename a program from maybe like a jazz school or a jazz department to to the the Black American music. Sure, yeah. So like you mentioned with Nicholas Payton, like when he wrote that uh, piece years ago, um, like over ten years ago, about uh, Black American music, it, it really you know brought up a conversation that has been brought up throughout the history of this music. Like our um, you know, the musicians have always named it what they wanted to name it, but somehow the name jazz has always been put on it. So um, I guess what it means in an academic setting is just really, um, it's it's kind of like the academic categories catching up to the work that's been done, you know? So what musicians have been saying about what the music is, what different, you know, scholars have written about the music. I feel like it's a chance to kind of like, kind of catch up with a lot of where people have been as an institution and, and really like acknowledge, you know, where this music comes from, the origins of the music and like the, the importance of the cultural context of it. Do you, do you feel like the academic world is like maybe kind of behind what's happening in culture? Like, like is, is, the, is like, because academia is like this whole microcosm that, you know, when you're in it, it's, it's a, it's a huge universe, but if you're not part of it, it's just like, that's what's happening over down the street, you know? <laughs> um, but, but do you feel like it's something that's like maybe the academic world is catching up to some of the conversations that we've been having outside of the school? Or, or do you feel like maybe this, this is like leading the way? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I mean, I was always assumed that any large institution we'll be catching up to like what's happening just because the nature of institutions, like they move slowly. 
So, you know, whether it's like a a university or like a orchestra institution, any like large institution, I feel like, you know, I feel like there's what's happening in in the music community in general and that's what's happening in the institutions. And, and so I, I usually imagine that the institution tries to catch on to what's already happening and, and really prioritize certain certain voices. So I think what's great with Tulane is that we are prioritizing, you know, like that the, this name change means a lot and really like acknowledging the roots of this music, like the culture, acknowledging black people as creators and um and yeah, and you know, we've been in all these music departments, like um the the priorities have been very unbalanced for <laughs> for a long time, you know, like in different music departments and um conservatories as far as like you have to learn this particular time period of Europe and a certain styles of music from Europe from these these time periods before you do anything else. And so a lot of universities in general, not a lot, several universities are questioning that in general, like in, in how they prioritize like a canon, you know, what, what is included as like, you know, the canon for students and what they should learn. So, so I think there are other places that are doing that as well, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of like more of a people trying to catch up to what things really are, you know, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely you know very important, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess when you think about an education, it's you know the academic world does have, you know, of course, is is plays a huge part in educating everyone and, and reflecting the world, but there's a lot of education that happens outside those walls, in institutions, and that's that's something as a jazz musician or a musician. Sorry, I'm not going to use that word right now, <laughs> uh, but as a musician, that like you know, I feel like it's like both both go hand in hand in being a complete. Um, a complete, you know, musician at the end of the day. Um, but maybe this would be a good time, you know, like I think something that, that I'm very fortunate of, and I always look back on my life and, and with great, you know, just, just in awe of the, the opportunity to, to study mu- music here in New Orleans with some of the great, um, the greats of this music, you know, Mr. Ellis Marcellus, uh, Clyde Kerr Jr., Alvin Batiste, Kid Jordan, um, Al Fielder, uh, Ms. Jermaine Basil, I got to make sure I, did I, did I leave anyone else? Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So we meant, yeah. Kid Jordan. So Kent Jordan and. Kent. Um, <laughs> I know all of our teachers, uh, Jonathan Bloom. I know it's like, once you start naming, it's like, but the whole community of like. Jackie yeah, Harris. Jackie Harris. Definitely. Uh-huh. I feel like, yeah, I don't want to name one and not name I all know. of them. Like they're all equally so important. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is that we got to study with all of these all these great educators like at one time, you know, or like at least in one time of our life. And and so that's been like, that's so unique to New Orleans. I feel like. I feel like I, I like having known you for so many years, like I've never asked you like, did, how did you start playing music? How did you get into it? Like, I just always took for granted that, you know, we were just classmates. Yeah. <laughs> how, that's how did true. We're always like, kind of like talking, we're always talking about what's next. Not We don't really talk about the past too much. Yeah. <laughs> How did how did you get into music? Do you have any like a do you have like a first musical memory or a moment that you were like, what's this? <laughs> yeah, the way I remember it, at least now um, at this old age, I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, my my first memories are from my church, St. Luke's Episcopal Church, and um, I just remember that's I, um, that's what I remember the most, and I know that it's definitely the most influential, like at an early age um, experience for me. And it's an Episcopal church. Um, we're actually now I'm back to playing like every Sunday. So it's kind of like a full circle time where I'm there playing. Um, and I've been doing so since the pandemic. Um, yeah, St. Luke's, um, it's Anglican church. It's mostly Caribbean. Um, it's like a black church where most folks are from, like the Caribbean, West Africa, um, Central America, South America, and and United States, of course. And um, that's like what I grew up in. And people would bring like all these different cultures together. And it's, but it's also in this like Anglican old school, like setting, you know, so, um, so that's what I grew up in. So musically we had a mix of styles, like between the traditional Anglican hymns and uh, spirituals and um, sometimes different, like sometimes West African percussion, we'd have um, Baba Luther Gray come for special occasions and, play like the percussion while we had um, the organ going, playing a hymn. And, you know, it was just interesting like thing to grow up in. So 
those are my earliest memories. But of course, growing up in New Orleans, you just hear so much, you know, between the brass bands and, you know, being part of like marching band um, in junior high was a big impact because I played in a marching band at a uh, McMain. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh. And that's well, that's when I played clarinet. I shouldn't even mention that to you because I, I whoa, 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 whoa. You, <laughs> you tell me that all this time you ne- you never told me you played clarinet. Yeah, because I can't play clarinet like you like you play clarinet. So <laughs> I don't even mention it. But I did play clarinet when I started at the Satch the Satchmo Jazz Camp. Uh huh. I was um playing clarinet as well as piano, but mainly clarinet. And that's what that's the one time I got to study with Elvin Baptiste was the the larger class. I didn't take private lessons, but like the larger class that we took. And I remember like playing the clarinet and learning like the Buddy Bolden music, uh, that mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was my experience today with Elvin Baptiste. Um, but yeah, with clarinet, I got to march in parades. And also my experience in marching band was the first time that I got to write for a large ensemble. So when I think about like my orchestral writing now and like a lot of the writing I'm doing, like the, the kind of the, the first experience of really getting to do that was with marching band and, and taking like some of the hip hop that we were hearing on the radio and getting to, you know, figure out how to orchestrate that for a, a marching band. So, I cannot believe you play clarinet. Like I'm, I know, mind- I never mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's crazy is that I, I'm pretty sure like, I, I I have to say at this point in my life, I know a lot of former clarinet players. <laughs> it's a hard instrument, <laughs> but you, you, yeah, you're awesome. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I, I, there was, you know, what happened was actually one time I was, I was over at Noka and I was studying with Davey Mooney on guitar. I wanted to play mm-hmm. guitar too. And I think at, at that time there was like six or seven guitar players at Noka. And I had like been practicing, like trying to play one, six, two, five on rhythm changes on guitar. And uh, this cat, this other cat walked in. I think it was like Ted Wassler, some random cat at Noco just walked in. And he was like, oh, you're trying to do this? Dun, 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 dun. And I was like, I'm going to stick the clarinet. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's always someone to do that while you're like in that moment of discovery or something new. Like, But no, that, that's cool. That's cool to know that you were learning guitar. What a, um, you know, that that time in New Orleans, I feel like that was like such a special time. I mean, again, like just looking back on, um, I mean, I think that the Armstrong camp was a scene, Armstrong camp slash Noka was a scene in and of itself. And, you know, it was like, I feel like the history books are going to be writing about like, you know, that day, Nelson Elementary School, there was mm-hmm. like Chamo Shorty, Jonathan Baptiste, uh, Christian Scott, Courtney Bryant, uh, Chris Royal, Joe Dyson, like all these cats um, in the house. But could you talk about maybe what what that was like back in the day like did you did that like does that resonate the same way with you or it does I mean I spent a lot of time thinking about this because um yeah it is it's interesting I was just like our normal thing you know like you meet your friends you know you meet the friends that you're gonna have for a while you're learning music together um and then looking back on it it's like wow we were really held at a certain level like at a very early age because like it wasn't just like oh they're young and they're learning it's like no we were all trained to like you know, to take this seriously, whatever we ended up choosing to do. And and most of us, like you're mentioning, a lot of the, the names, a lot of us who are friends, we all have chosen this as our career. Like we've, we've been making a career as musicians. So um, yeah, that experience was amazing. I mean, I'm really fascinated, especially on the teaching side. I want to know like how, what's so, is there something unique about, and I, and these these uh, educators were talking about, and I and I, I like to think about it through the the Louis Satchel Armstrong summer jazz camp in particular, because all these teachers at that time, like, they all taught us, but nobody was teaching us like style. It wasn't like you know sometimes you you go somewhere there'll be like a school of thought where you could tell by hearing someone play where they studied or who they studied with. And one thing that our teachers taught us in that context was how to like create our own sound and like how kid Jordan always mentioned, we we're talking about the fundamentals. And so like, it was like fundamentals, but also exposing us to like the top of many different things, you know, like, like how Jackie Harris would always bring in um, each year, there was a special guest, you know, artists who would come in. So we'd have like direct contact with like, say like Winston Marcellus or Reggie Workman, or George Duke, you know, um, yeah, like the cats, like yeah. 
cats in the world. Yeah. I think <laughs> came one year, Donald Harrison. Uh, I'm just like Patrice Russian. Patrice, oh man. Yeah, I know. It's just like every year. So there's that. And then and then among our teachers, they're they're all like have their own legacies, you know. And so and, um, you know, like Marlon Jordan and all the. Yeah. So um, us being uh, in that setting and um, I'm just curious, like trying to study it right now, like study like the whole pedagogy side of what it was, because it's something very unique and it's something. I would like to be able to continue and, and Roger Dickerson, I know we keep mentioning different names, but like all these different like pedagogy, they, everybody has their own style of teaching, but as a collective, they, they taught us how to, how to really find our own unique sound. And, and I'm just really fascinated with that. I totally agree with you. And you know, I, I feel like I have the, the same difficulty in like kind of putting my finger on like what that, might be called or what, what the name is. But to me at this point, like it's a feeling or, yeah, I don't know. Cause I had, I was having this conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about a guitar player here in New Orleans. And, and he was mentioning that like, he kind of transcends genres a little bit and like knows how to like flow with music without kind of like playing his like predetermined licks or something. And, and I, I feel like, yeah, that's, that's like, I feel, I feel very close to that kind of like someone's mentioned like, Oh yeah, like it's a he's a bebop drummer. And like my first thought was like, what the fuck is a bebop drummer? <laughs> yeah, I wonder what they mean by that. <laughs> yeah, no, and 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 I I yeah, having conversations with people like, yeah, that guitar player plays tradition, or, you know, like that that meant nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause yeah, like in one class we would play Buddy Bolden with Mr. Bad, and then we'd like turn around and and like, you know kid was writing these blueses that we would all play that were like, I mean, still like burned into my head. Yeah. And, and then we would just play like the most, like then, you know, like, like I remember like Stephen Gladney playing like Afro blue or something. Uh, and it was all together. Like nothing was like prioritized as first you do this, then you do that. And yeah, like, and like everybody learning Roger Dickerson's, if I could tell you, I would. I mean, that's something you can use in so many ways, but it's like, you know, like everybody had that kind of, these different tools that you learn at the same time and you, you make of it, you, what you, what you can. And, and, and then over the years, it's like, we were there as students, but over the years, it's like, I heck how we're talking about it now. We continue to learn, you know, from those that are here. And then also those who have passed, it's like, you still have the sayings from Elvin Baptiste. And I know you have a lot of them. Um, and then Clyde Kerr and, and, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's such a rich, History and like you said about things being written, I mean, I, I do think we we those of us who are part of that history should you know write about it and um, talk about it like we're doing now. What um, can you can you further elaborate on what Mr. Dickinson would say? Because I have oh. to I have to admit, like I loved Mr. Dickinson so much, mm-hmm. and he's one of the I mean, he's a genius and responsible for the great composers, all the great composers mm-hmm. out of New Orleans. But I, I never had a chance to study with him. Oh, okay. Or I never took his composition class. So oh. I, my interactions with him were always just like in a casual, um, you know, just hanging. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I wish I could like describe because I know what one thing he does do in, in any class or any private lesson is he starts with his answer to how do you compose this? If I could tell you, I would. So it sounds like he's saying that's the answer, but then you use that phrase and then you learn about the elements of music and how you create music. So how you create music, which of course could be used for composing real time, like improvisation, or it could be used for when you're composing, you know, um, for any group of instruments. And um, he would take that phrase and you can use the accents different ways. Like if I could tell you, I would, and you could take it and say, could you, would you anything with those words, but using that, like that, the way he teaches it, it's like, it helps you, I'm thinking about how to create, like how to uh, build tools and, and use those to create music. So I teach now um, through, I'm a creative partner with the Louisiana Philharmonic. And part of what I do there, besides them performing my music, is I also work in their educational programs. So this year for particular with the young students, um, I started off telling them about studying with Roger Dickerson. And if I could tell you, I would. And we use that as an exercise without getting into the instruments or the musical notes yet. 
just using it by speaking. And so when they're creating, sometimes I refer back to that. And that's how I use it when I'm composing. I, I, I refer, like I might have an idea and I'm thinking, how do I develop it? And, you know, it's like some version of if I could tell you I would. So that's that's one of the, the sayings. And so I, I love, love to, um, yeah, that's one, that's one of the approaches. And yeah, such, we, yeah, such um, interesting ways of, of teaching, like all our teachers. I wonder, sometimes I wonder, like, I know all of these cats had curriculums. You know, I know Mr. Bat was like very, you know, he wrote the Reprogression book and was always thinking about education and how to help us learn. But it was like weird too, because it never, it never felt like we were walking into the class and it was like, today we're going to learn about the Mixolydian scale. And like, I don't care if you're playing what what you're working on. Like we're doing Mixolydian today. Yeah, you know? I know. And it seemed like really like the epitome of like, I guess the, like the oral tradition in the sense that we would like, I mean, yeah, community, the, 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 all these wonderful things. Um, and I never really felt like Mr. Bat was, and when I say Mr. Bat, I feel like I'm like talking about all of these great educators at the same time too. But someone says something to me the other day too, that I really loved. And it was like, te- great teachers don't teach. They remind us mm-hmm. what we already know. And like, I thought, I, I always think like that was something that I feel was very special about that meeting them at that part of my life was that they, I mean, they were teaching me things, don't get me wrong, but they were like reminding me of things that they knew about me that I had yet to discover, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I see what you're saying. And I was, that always like blows my mind just kind of. You know, Jesse said something the other day. He was like, you know, Mr. Bat knew you were going to be doing this when you were older. And I was like, <laughs> but I don't doubt that. And, and, yeah. and kind of saying too, like, I'm 35 and I'm still like trying to digest the experiences that I had. Yeah, I know. It feels like a mystery to see it from that side. Like, but then it makes sense with all of when you think about all of the people who studied with them over the years, like Alvin Batista, all the people who it's like people made a pilgrimage to Louisiana to to work with him in Baton Rouge. And um yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it is something to imagine from that side how he can see you at a certain stage of your development and see where you're going and help you get there, you know. Uh, but they all did that. I mean, I think about um the days at NOCA and how uh, Mr. Kerr would, um, same thing where he's saying he had a lesson plan. Like there were definitely like order to things, but I feel like every time he left class, he would come back based, you know, with something based on what we did the last class. And uh, now that I'm thinking about class prep, I'm like, oh my God, that takes a lot. <laughs> like it's easier if you have the whole thing set up and you let the students catch up to where that is. But I feel like he he both had that in a in a general way, but once we would go through maybe like Wayne Shorter's footprints, if something came up in that class, you know, that we really needed to figure out harmonically or otherwise, you know, like we would, we would continue with that or we would like, he would bring in something else altogether. And we, sometimes it was more based on playing. Sometimes we would do more listening. So it's like, you know, learning to listen. And um, <clears throat> that's something that Ellis Marcellus taught me. Um, and I, I studied with him for two weeks. And it, that left such a big impact. So there's some teachers I studied with for years. And with Ellis Marcellus, um, <clears throat> I was in high school. I was at uh, Franklin and Noka, but I was at Franklin and I had to do some summer classes. So I was taking classes at UNO. Um, and I don't even remember what classes I was taking, <laughs> but I had to take some classes at UNO at the time to, for my credits. And then I... Um, I got my courage together and walked up to uh, Mr. Marcellus's um, office and just introduced myself and said I was into music. So he had me come in and play something for him. And then he gave me something to work on and said to come back tomorrow. So we didn't even really discuss like, a, you know, like signing up for lessons or anything. It was just like, come back tomorrow. So for two weeks, I did an intensive with him where I came every day and I was practicing all day when I came home. I would like get my homework out of the way for the other classes and practice. And one thing he really told me was that I needed to learn how to listen to music. And we went through like, there were like at least two recordings during that week. One of them was Miles Davis uh, or Cannonball, um, Adelie or something else. And I remember like getting in detail and like really hearing what was happening with the interaction of the different instruments, not just who was soloing at the time, which is what I was focusing on. And so, um, yeah, just like 
yeah, he said you need to learn how to listen. So I always think about him. And when I'm teaching, I remind students, especially those who are not music majors, that listening is its own skill that you build up. Like you don't just hear something once and hear everything like listening just like they really emphasize reading in a lot of, you know, majors. It's like how you do a deep reading, just kind of emphasizing listening is not just something you do in the background. You have to kind of listen and listen again, then listen for that then listen for that to really, you know, appreciate something. And so, yeah, that was another lesson that was from Ellis Marcellus. That's, I mean, that, that's so true. That listening is, is, I mean, yeah, listening is everything in this music. I mean, cause again, like the page, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but again, like I would assume that even in the classical world, like composing, like the composer hears or conceptualizes what they want to have played mm-hmm. and they notate it as like a way of remembering, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like the music exists on the page first and then it's like out there. It's kind of like the music exists and the page is just there to remind us of like, what it was <laughs> yeah it's like a form of communication it's like here's what yeah. we are communicating this this idea so you can you can engage with it um you know you brought up mr kerr real quick and you know i feel like you know mr kerr i didn't get to work with him a lot just because i was always with mr bat and by the time i went to noca he he was uh, no longer part of the faculty um but i feel like he's one of the the more underdocumented mm. um, cats out of out of all of those guys and and i was wondering if you had like a particular memory or story about mr kerr from back in the day that kind of resonated with you Hmm. i have a lot um i guess like i mentioned about him coming back each class with something like that i just know that he like poured his whole self into teaching And when you mentioned the documentation, I know that it was much later, like he had been on all these different recordings, but it was a big deal when he, when he created that, his uh, recording um, now, um, the time is now. This is now or something like that. This is now. Thank you. I'm sorry. I know I was like, I'm going to mess it up. Sorry. This is now when he made that recording, it was such a big deal because part of his pedagogy was that we would learn. I mentioned him teaching like Wayne Shorter and these, um, you know, I just use it as one example, but we would learn his pieces, his original compositions. And that's part of how we, how he also taught the music. So it was just something that we would learn and his music was great. So we really enjoyed playing it. Um, but I also thought about how, how cool that was that like how specific that, he would use his compositions as like, as teaching tools, you know, we learned how to play. Um, but th- you could tell kind of students who have worked with him because we have this music and that's something that I want to make sure that I remember all these pieces because, you know, memory is tricky, but like among his students, we remember these different pieces of his like Leo's lady and yeah. um, Treme and wait. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of memories. I mean, he definitely like he definitely put a lot into students and and across across the board because there were those who were in the jazz program and we worked with him regularly. But he also was there for students who were studying in the classical department. And I don't know if we had any other departments, but like students in general who wanted to learn, they would come to, to Mr. Kerr and he was he was very generous in general, you know, with with everyone. And he was also pretty intense. I, I mean, I remember him being like, I mean, when you, when you mentioned going to Ellis's office and like asking him for lessons, like, I, I mean, all of these, these, these people were like very kind, very generous with their time and, and really did want to pass all everything that they knew down, especially if you showed interest, but man, they were intimidating. That's that too. Yeah. So there's, that's why I, said I had the courage to ask, cause you kind of know who these figures are in your community and there's, and it's for a reason, like they're, it's a certain level of excellence to be where they are and as generous as they are, they're not going to take it easy on you. So it's not like I'm sharing all this information and like, Oh, just do what you can. It's like, no, I want you to show up tomorrow prepared. Cause sometimes Mr. Kerr would stop class. And I remember him saying one time about what it means for him to give out energy and he wants to have some of the energy coming back. Like one time he vented like that. I was like, Oh man, like you just didn't want to disappoint them because you were aware that they were sharing, you know, like they were really investing in us. Um, 
like from the heart, not investing like, oh, they're not just like they're continuing my brand. Like, that's what I'm saying, like where there are like schools of teaching where you kind of create people to continue a certain sound or a certain thing like that. But it was really like, um, yeah, teaching us to create our to find our own tradition. And um, I mean, the thing I can find most similar to it is when I learned more about the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians out of Chicago. And that was also another teacher of mine, um, George Lewis, who I studied with at, at Columbia. He wrote, uh, he wrote the really major book that kind of helped like understand like the importance of this group, like how they're created and um, just, yeah, like really understand. And when I, when I was reading about the AACM, that was the closest thing I could see to kind of understanding like this community that we came up in, in New Orleans. And um, yeah, so I don't know, there's just a lot to learn, but, but, but it does help when we share our own stories of each of the teachers. So we kind of keep the memory going, you know? Yeah, we definitely keep the memory going. Yeah. I feel, I feel very similar to, to everything that you just said. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, yeah, they, they invested their heart energy into us. Not only the, you know, not only the notes and the theory and stuff, but they mm-hmm. were like heart energy into us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're, you're such a unique musician and in the sense that like, you're from New Orleans and you're this like world accomplished composer. Like how- You're making how, me blush. <laughs> No, you really are. No, thank you. Um, every time I open up the, every time I open up the internet, <laughs> like you know, like I mean, you've accomplished so many things with having your work premiered, you know, Carnegie Hall. Um, I believe you just had this fellowship in Europe. Or, in oh, that's Rome. right. Yeah, the Rome Prize. Yeah, like I mean, you've just done so many incredible things, and and I was just wondering, like how. Like what, what drew you to composition as opposed to maybe like, you know, I guess more stereotypically like New Orleans musicians find themselves like being gigging musicians mm-hmm. and wondering how, what drew you to composition specifically? Yeah. Well, um, well, thanks for that. Um, that, and, um, <laughs> let me think, I guess that I always just did what I like doing. Like I always like composing. So I, I would, I would consider myself self-taught as a composer for the beginning of my life. Um, like as soon as I could fit on the piano, I was improvising and composing. Like I would, um, I would say my process looking back on it is I would just, whatever I was hearing, like in a movie on the radio, I would like practice playing it by ear. And I was also taking piano lessons since I was five with um, a teacher who lived down the street, Miss McDowell. So I was learning, I was learning reading music and I was also challenging myself to learn by ear and I would just play whatever I could hear. And Normally, what whatever I was learning, either in my lesson or um, on the radio, I would play it. I would improvise based off of that. And then sometimes I would get to a point where I would find something new from that. And I would um, and I would kind of repeat it until I had it memorized. So that was my way of like I would uh, really like create these through composed pieces and memorize them and play them like the exact way each time. And my parents were very like, um, were very like adamant that I would record these things. Cause I just thought I'd remember them forever. Cause I was like, no, I got it locked in here, but I guess they knew better. So like they would record all this stuff. So I had all these cassette tapes cause that's the time period. I had all, (laughs) all these cassette tapes of like the pieces I composed over the years since I was five. And, um, and I had them up until Katrina. So, I was um, gonna say, please don't tell me this is a Katrina story. It's a Katrina story. Everything is pre-K oh. and post-K. Oh, I actually, yeah, I had all these recordings. Some I I still remember some. Like even going back to five. I remember a piece from when I was five, from when I was seven, one, and then I remember some from more so from junior high time. And then um, yeah, I don't know, but of course I forgot most of these things I have recorded. Um, what happens is after Katrina. Um, and I'll go back. I know I chose being a composer. Well, let's see, through school, you know, like I feel like growing up, I just did what I wanted to do. And even if things were separate, I would just like in, in New Orleans, I studied um with a teacher, Dean Curtis, when I was doing my um talented music. That's right, because she was at NOCA when you were there, right? 
That's right. So she taught in the Talented and Arts program in the public schools for at first before she started teaching at NOCA in particular. And um, she's the one who told me to use the word compose because I would come in my lessons. And um, I remember at that time, I was really into both Scott Joplin and into Frederick Chopin. Those were like my two favorites. And so I was learning that music and it was like a mix of like the, you know, the mix of like technique and then repertoire. But she'd always save some time at the end for me to bring in something that I had made up because I said, oh, here's something I made up this week. And like she'd always leave time for that. And she also like I was really into Mariah Carey and Mariah Carey had just come out. (laughs) And so like I had this book of Mariah Carey's music and like she made room for all of that, like in the lessons, like, you know, and so it's great to have a teacher who really understood that all this was equally important. So that's another she's a big influence on me, Dean Curtis. Um, but she also told me to start using the word compose, like what you're doing is composing. And so I would say my composition thing started back in elementary school when I was working with her to use that word. Um, I studied with Dr. Daniel Wildbacker, classical piano um, during my high school years. I also studied with Moses Hogan for a short time on piano. Um, so I had all these great teachers and, 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 I, and that was kind of in its own world. And then what we were doing in NOCA was like in its own world in a way. And, um, and I played in church. Um, I would sub as the organist at church. So these are different strains that I saw as separate, but throughout my career, I've always done these things, but I kind of, I kind of, the way I brought it all together, I think was more so through the composition. And um, at some point, you know, cause we only have so many hours in a day. It's like, you try things like I mentioned, I tried clarinet and I learned a lot through playing clarinet because I, I just have a certain like affinity towards the woodwind instruments when I'm composing. Um, and uh but, but, you know, it's like you kind of like, and when I got to Oberlin, I started off with three majors. So I started off like with classical piano, jazz piano and composition. And by the time I graduated, I graduated with composition. So sometime during that time in Oberlin, I was kind of like prioritizing like where most of my time goes. And, and I performed in ensembles all the time, like jazz ensembles, but I wasn't doing it like as a major. So I found that performance is as important to me as composition, but, um, in recent years, I would say I've been really heavy on the composition side um, for now, but I'm also planning to get back into performing more because I do miss it. And so, and then there's teaching. So, you know, it's just kind of like, I've been, I like checking out people's biographies, like people who have done a lot of different things. And I've learned that sometimes they don't always do everything at one time. There might be some years where you're really into your, you know, composing for this ensemble, that ensemble, Maybe there's other years where you're really like doing your own ensemble and performing, or maybe you're a composer for a certain ensemble and really get deep into that, you know, or, you know, there's teaching, maybe like you take breaks from this and focus more on that. So I'm just trying to like every, every couple of years, I kind of check in with myself about how I feel about what I'm doing and what do I need to do more of. How has um, being a New Orleanian and also someone who's like studied jazz informed your concept of like composition within the classical style, like using like the, the, you know, the stereotypical like classical orchestration or the orchestra as an Mm -hmm. instrument. Does like, do you feel like that's something that makes you unique or how does that change your approach to the music versus like someone who grew up in Paris (laughs) and studying how to write for the orchestra? I mean, I'm sure like all the things we were talking about earlier, like the the influences that we've had and the kind of the lessons that we've taught, like as far as musical values, I feel like that's at the core of who I am as a musician, whether I'm performing or writing. So um, I feel like that's a big part of just like basically everything I've studied or, or the different worlds I've been in working in churches um, over the years. I know it's the questions about New Orleans, but um New Orleans itself, but also just my experiences in music, like as a church musician in different cities, wherever I've studied, I've been a church musician and and that led me to different types of churches. So then I'd have to learn like, oh, um, I'm used to Episcopal church, but now I'm in a Methodist church and now I'm in a Baptist church. And, you know, like whichever church is like different role, it's different types of music, but the role is the same. So that role as a church musician, I take into composer for orchestra um being a jazz musician from new orleans i take into writing for orchestra um my studies of 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 different like 
piano traditions I, I take into my it, it's definitely I'm always thinking as a pianist but I I have trained myself to think for the other instruments first you know as I'm writing for them and yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, I'm still figuring out, you know, it's hard to like, it's kind of like looking in the mirror. Like, <laughs> it's hard to know like what all is in your music sometimes. But I, I definitely think that like growing up here, I'm sure has had a, a big impact. And my parents, like the, I found that a lot of ideas I've thought are my ideas are actually my parents. You know, like I'm the more I learn about them as an adult and kind of like the work that they've always been doing. Like I see them as mom and daddy, but when I learn more about their, the work my mother does as a, English scholar, as literature scholar, and my father, who um, has been a lawyer and also involved in a lot of the local politics over the years. Um, I'm learning more about myself and the things that I'm drawn to and realizing like, oh, I thought it was me, but it's actually, you know, a continuation of, of their interests. Well, I did, I did not know that your, is, is your mom also in uh, the academic institutions? Yeah, yeah. So their academia is very big in my family, actually. Um, so. Oh, my mama, she's an emeritus uh, English professor from Xavier University. She retired the year that I was starting at Tulane. She was retiring. And so in a way, it kind of felt like I was directly continuing what she's doing. Um, but definitely like a lot of um, my family, most of my family is very big into academia. And um, so me deciding to do that was kind of, um, you know, having the, I guess, privilege of growing up in that I, I I saw that as an area where I could feel at home you know and, and that's that's not necessarily what I saw happening early on because I, I kind of was looking at ideas of success as a musician I wasn't thinking about academia necessarily I was I was definitely thinking about like touring the world um for most of the year and I know I I had like certain ideas that I found exciting, but I also the further I got, I kind of started finding out what things I was most excited about at the moment. And it kind of led me to the my career as, as I'm doing it right now. So I've realized that there's like a lot of different ways of having so-called, you know, su- success or, you know, what's the ideal setting for how you want to create music or what settings. Also, sometimes what settings feel available to you. So it's not just like me. Some things I some things that have led me to today are what I've chosen. And other things are kind of what felt chosen for me, like places where I did feel welcome and places where I didn't feel welcome. So there's that too. And that brings up, I mean, some of that's due to race, some of it's due to gender, like some of it's like certain settings, like for me in my particular body, like like where where I feel um. Uh, yeah, so there, there's a lot of elements to to choosing like different directions. I always I feel personally awkward kind of bringing up like the 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 topic of like race and gender in in like conversations just because I am a white male. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm wondering like do you how how I mean how has that informed your experience and do you feel like like how, how has that impacted your quest for excellence yeah I mean it's always been there so like I think like how I feel like no matter who you are you're proving yourself um as a musician in the context you're in but then Mm -hmm. when you bring in um being marginalized in whichever way um then that's a part of it too so it depends on what world I mean I would say like as a performer in the jazz world definitely I, I would kind of focus less more so on my gender as something that I had to kind of overcome, like say like some of my closest friends growing up would compliment me by saying I played like a man. Hmm. And, you know, it's like a, it's a complicated um, compliment to get, <laughs> you know, and I knew it even back then that. Hmm? It's like kind of like, thank you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. And I would be like, yeah, that's kind of my response, you know, cause at the same time, it was an insult to being a, a, a at the time, a girl, not a woman. But um, it was it was insult in that way. But I also liked getting the approval of my colleagues. Like we were on similar wavelengths of what we're doing musically. And so I knew like from them it was coming as a compliment, but it was also like a, you know, backhanded compliment or just trying to overcome 
just carrying myself certain ways as a girl, like uh, both growing up in New Orleans and then also like thinking about time in college, like being very like cautious and careful of how I carried myself to in a way of like sort of a protection. Um, and and so there's negotiating that and I could say more about it at some point, but I'm, I don't know if I'm really prepared right now, but but, you know, just like negotiating how I carry myself ar- around in this world of men to be equally respected. Um, and and often when you're not expected to be equal, you kind of have to over, you know, overdo. So, like, I felt like there was no room for, like, error or, like, no room for being, um, you know, like, I wanted to, like, it's always, like, approving yourself. And, and I would say in the classical world, uh, the marginalized would definitely be, like, I would think of, well, gender is part of it, too, but I definitely think of race even more, like, especially in the like so-called classical world where people sometimes are surprised. I think these days, maybe less so than even when we were younger, are surprised. Like sometimes the history of black composers writing for orchestras and choruses and in this in this Western art tradition is lesser studied. Um, often it's um, if you're learning about Western art music, you don't hear about black composers in this tradition. If you're taking a class on black music, you don't usually hear about composers in this tradition because it's sometimes not seen as black music by some, you know, it's just it's just something that's lesser studied. But there's actually this rich history of this, you know, of this tradition um, going back, you know, some centuries. And so um, for me, learning for me, learning history has been very supportive to me in existing in these worlds like from early on, now that I'm teaching, like I enjoy getting to like learn even more detail, like share, you know, I learned as I teach, but like, I would say growing up, it was kind of almost like a, it was like a need. Like I needed to see Jerry Allen doing what she was doing in order to know like, Oh, there's a place for me doing this to learn about Mary Lou Williams, um, to learn about William Grant still Florence Price, right for orchestra. Um, just learning the history kind of made it less, um, it, it made me know like, oh yeah, no, I belong here. And, and whatever struggles I'm having now, just imagine the struggles that, you know, that they were having or that Lil Hardin Armstrong was having, you know, and not just struggles, but her triumphs. I mean, Lil Hardin Armstrong, like she, even though in that time period, she sometimes was, I feel like the way people talk about her a lot of times is in, in relation to Louis Armstrong and how she supported his career but I feel like I had to do some digging to find out about this whole career she had after her marriage with Louis Armstrong and like how she led these different swing bands, her own bands. And um, she had a very, a very rich career. And in the early days, um, she had a rich career. I mean, like to be in that, you know, in the in um, King Oliver's Creole jazz band and to be like a prized member of that group. I mean, she was very successful. So um yeah anyway history is like has been a help for me in finding my own place and the things that I want to do that I'm going to do regardless you know but it helps maybe this is a weird question but as as <laughs> as, as someone who's like uh, you know again a white male like what like how how can I be sure that in in my spaces of learning that I am being inclusive. I am like keeping that door of possibility open for all of my students, not only the ones that look like me. Um, Cause that's, that's something that like, I always feel a little awkward about too, you know, just, and I, and I feel like it's, I mean, I feel like it's a good thing that I feel about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you asking that question, I always think is the main thing. Like, I think we all kind of have to kind of see what are our automatic impulses and then what are our blind spots, you know? Um, Cause I guess I'll turn it back to me. Like I might think about race and gender automatically because of I've had to work through it from that lens, but sometimes I have to be sensitive to people's religion, religious experiences or like religions that are sometimes um, vilified, you know, and like being sensitive when I talk about and, and, um, and and music, you know, like just being sensitive to people of different backgrounds or, you know, with sexuality and gender, like for me, like always expanding upon how, you know, like the more you learn, the more you, the more you just know better. 
So like really like learning from people's experiences about like gender and sexuality and how that impacts them. And also just seeing people where they are and who they are, like seeing people and not just not always just doing, you know, what you've always known or whatever. So that's my best viewpoint into knowing what it's like to be a white male. I mean, you know, it's kind of like I feel like I have my things, too, where you have to kind of know when you're the marginalized group and also when you're kind of more on the privileged side of things, you know? And so I feel like even with my identity, I have places where I'm more marginalized. I have places where I'm more privileged. And so I think it's important to like, keep that in mind, like your own, like we're all kind of, we're all like in our own box. And sometimes we see other others in a box, but we all kind of have these boxes and how do you make those boxes more connected? How do you, how do you kind of get rid of some of the borders of the boxes? Yeah. As as you're saying that, I was, I was like just reflecting on what you said earlier too, about listening, just like Mm. the skill of listening. And that's definitely something that I feel like in today's context and and a lot of these conversations that we kind of casually see on the news and things like that, that I don't see a lot of listening happening. Mm. Yeah. Some people think listening is just waiting for your chance to say something, (laughs) but that's not actually listening. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and I think as musicians, we get a lot of practice in that. Like, in order to get to a certain level of being a musician, you have to know how to listen. You know, so I think if we can apply that to other parts of life, and you know, then yeah, I think I think we're all kind of better off. I completely completely agree with you, um, Courtney. We're kind of coming up on time here. <laughs> I know you got grades to turn in tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. You got some stuff to do, but um, before we go, I I know I feel like we need to have a part two at some point talking about what you got going on today, and we we haven't even touched on that. But um, before before we roll, could we tell? Could you would you mind sharing with us if you like things you have coming up, places we can um, connect with you online, or or where mm-hmm. we can find and hear some of your compositions? Sure. So yeah, I could do the quick uh, elevator pitch. I guess so. I um I have a website. Um, it's CourtneyBryan.com. And so I'm trying to get better about updating <laughs> what I'm doing. But um, I have like uh, events that are coming up. Um, I work, as I mentioned, I'm a creative partner with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. So we have some events coming up in April that I've, um, they're going to pr- uh, perform some of my works. And one of the concerts, I it's a work of mine, but also works that I've helped arrange of uh, Margaret Bonds and Florence Price, other Black women composers, and it'll feature vocalist Joelle Dyson. So I'm really excited about that concert. <laughs> That's coming up in April. Um, these are some, and I have other concerts coming up in different um, cities as well, like in New York. Uh, well, this Friday, I'll be doing an Alice Coltrane tribute as part of a, a Brooklyn Raga Massive Festival. Um, I'll put that online. <laughs> and um, uh, it may, um, I'll have something at the Apollo, a peace of mind sanctum that's been performed before. It's going to be performed at Apollo as part of this uh, concert. Um, so I have concerts coming up of pre-existing works, but also um, as far as works that I'm, that are on the horizon, I'm working on my first musical theater project. So I'm I'm working on a, a piece with Bard that's um, a musical based on Scott Joplin's opera Tremonisha. Um, So more on that soon. And I'm in the beginning stages of working on a piano concerto that I'm going to actually premiere. So speaking of um, me really trying to get back into the performance thing, I just threw myself in that one. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no. But um, so I'm working on that. That's going to be with L.A. Not oh, no, but, um, you know, I'm talking about anxiety. So um, that's going to be with L.A. Phil and Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra like a year from now I'll I'll actually premiere this piano concerto I'm writing and I'm finishing up a recording so it's been a while the last recording I did I know you were a part of um and it, it's been that long since <laughs> since I've done a recording you remember back in the day so um I'm, I'm working on a recording that I actually went in the studio Esplanade Studios and we did a recording uh right before the pandemic hit and I've kind of had it on hold since. So one of my goals is to finish that this year. So I'll, I'll have more out about that soon. I'm sorry, as you're saying that, how do you juggle all of these these different hats that you're wearing? Like, how do you find the time to dedicate and give each project the time that it needs? Um, it's a challenge. <laughs> some, like I said, you know, like, it's like you balance things and some things become the priority. Some things, you know, like, 
like I had planned to get my grades done before today, but they're kind of going up today, you know, like things like that. But I also try to like just prioritize like not only between work, but I've been really working the past few years on prioritizing between work and life balance. And it's actually helping me a little bit. Like I'm, I'm it's definitely something I'm working on, but I think before it was like all work. And so it was like balancing, but it never felt right. But I think the more I try to focus on that work life balance, um, I'm, I'm finding a way to balance things. And there's just some things I just haven't got to do is I don't perform as much as I would like. So I'm not really balancing things. Like if I had an idea like balancing, I'd be doing more, but <laughs> I haven't really been performing. And I get that awkward question when I see folks, it's like, where are you performing these days? It's like, well, sometimes, you know, but I try to say, oh, I'm doing my writing these days. Like I try to have my ready-made answer, but I do miss, I do miss performing like more and performing with others and just like growing in that way. And, and when I sit in with somebody, I feel rusty, you know, it's like I haven't been doing as much, but I, I do feel like the things that I have been doing are the things that I really, really want to do right now. So I just try to remember, you can't do everything at one time. You just try to do the best you can and, you know, hope to live a long life, long, healthy life. There you go. We're going to leave it at that right there. Um, <laughs> Dr. Bryant, thank you very, very much for for making time and your busy schedule to, uh, to come and talk with us and, and share your experiences and information and knowledge with us um, here at the Working Artist Project. And um, thank you so much from the bottom hey, of my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you so More much. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for tonight. And uh, we'll catch you next week with another episode of the Working Artist Project. My name is Gregory Ajid and we'll catch you next time. Peace. <laughs>